All right, we can get started. Why don't we open with a uh, word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here this morning to hear from your word. We thank you for your word, which encourages us, challenges us, helps us to grow. I pray this morning as we study your word that we would have receptive hearts uh, ready to receive the implanted word. Please help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, it's pretty exciting to, to know that we only have seven books of the Bible left. That's about 38 chapters, in case anyone's counting. Um, but I've been really encouraged to go through the study of the New Testament with you guys. And um, I'm really excited to study the book of James with you this morning. Um, I know they say you're not supposed to pick favorites when it comes to your children, and perhaps the same could be said of books of the Bible, but if you know me at all, um, and if I'm being honest, James is probably my favorite book in the Bible, so I'm looking forward to studying it with you this morning. Uh, unlike the other books of the New Testament, James isn't giving us a theologically rich presentation of the gospel, but rather he focuses attention on believers and helping us to live faithful lives for Christ. It kind of sets itself apart from the other books of the New Testament in its overall tone. Um, it's almost got this easy to consume, fast paced, almost modern style of writing. Uh, it moves us quickly from one familiar truth to the next. Um, so familiar that perhaps as you were reading it this week, you thought to yourself, Oh, I didn't know that verse was in the book of James. Also familiar in the sense that um, each week, it seems that James is, James is referenced or quoted um, in Sunday school or in church, uh, not to name names, but um, I've, I've enjoyed hearing some teachers almost preach the whole message of James and leaving me wondering if I would have anything to teach on. But uh, I would invite you to participate in an exercise and pay attention and see how many times James is quoted. There's a reason for that that I'll get into a little bit later. <clears throat> James has been often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. So if you like the book of Proverbs, you probably enjoyed reading through the book of James. It's full of illustrations and visuals um, to help the reader to relate. It addresses our human nature in many ways and gives us easy to follow formulas uh, to deal with our sin. James is like that straightforward, direct friend that invites you out to coffee, sits you down, challenges you, and encourages you through God's word. In many ways, James is like a spiritual how-to book for the Christian, um, almost like a spiritual checkup. I would invite you to actually read the book of James once a month just to see how you're doing with your walk. Anyways, that's enough of my sales job for the book of James. You guys read it. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I do. Um, we're going to move fast this morning, so hopefully you had your coffee. Uh, we're going to focus heavily on the practical like James does, so let's get into it. By way of introduction, James, who was he? I was surprised to learn several years ago that the James that wrote this book wasn't actually the disciple James, but rather Jesus' oldest half-brother James. 
we see a couple of different references to him early on. One of the earlier ones, when Jesus is appointing the 12 apostles and giving them authority to preach and to cast out demons, it says of Jesus, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to see him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. It's commonly, commonly believed that James was part of this group of his family that, dare I say, was embarrassed by Jesus. In fact, it goes on in John to tell us a little bit more about his brothers. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. You see, James didn't have a faith in Christ until, actually, the resurrection. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James didn't uh, accept that his brother was the son of God. I can almost picture him like, yeah, yeah, sure, you're the son of God, right? Um, but he rejected Christ as, as the Messiah um, until the res resurrection. James then goes on to uh, rise to prominence as a key leader in the church of Jerusalem. And I actually have our first point of application here. Salvation is always in God's timing. Don't get discouraged by the lack of response in others when we witness, share the truth, and trust God for the rest. I know it's easy to get discouraged as Christians um, when we share the gospel with our friends, family, co-workers for months, years, maybe even decades, and we think to ourselves, what more do these people need to see? And yet, can I give you James here, grew up with Jesus, lived in the same home together, I'm sure saw many things, and yet it wasn't until Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave that he believed in Jesus. So stay encouraged, continue to be faithful, pray for the, the people you're sharing the gospel with. We talked about the church in Jerusalem. It was often referred to as the mother church. It was mostly made up of Christian Jews, to which this letter was primarily addressed. It was said to be the first Christian community, and it fell on hard times. There was a great famine, poverty. Maybe you got a sense for that in James's writing. It was written in A.D. 44 to 49, making it the oldest New Testament letter written. And I said the, earlier about the familiarity. Um, the book of James is said to be influenced by Jesus' sermons, most notably the Sermon on the Mount. So it would make sense that there's a lot of familiar truth that James is reiterating or expanding upon. Also the book of Proverbs, which has a lot of wisdom. And I think personally, even the book of Job. For as direct and as uh, straightforward and harsh as James may seem when he's writing, he opens up his letter kind of coming alongside the believers recognizing that they've fallen on hard times, that life isn't easy. And he encourages us to count it all joy. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And ask the question, what do James and Peter both agree is happening when we face trials? Cynthia. Testing, right. For you know that the testing of your faith from James and from First Peter, the tested genuineness of your faith. Uh, the genuineness of our, of our faith is one of the key themes of the book of James. So it makes sense that he would open his letter this way. 
you know, God allows tests of faith in our lives. We don't always understand them, but they come with a purpose. And according to James, what are the results or the purpose of trials in the Christian's life? Julie. Right. Produce steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. <clears throat> steadfastness, you can also think of that as this unwavering faith in God. <clears throat> James goes on a couple of verses later, uh, and he mentions steadfast again. Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. But when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, the crown here is, is a reference to this wreath that would have been put on the head of uh, the winners in ancient Greek athletics. And for the believer, the crown of life is eternal life, right? That's our ultimate reward, the, the reward that's been promised to us through faith in Christ. So the application here, recall some recent and perhaps not so recent trials you've experienced in your life. Intentionally reflect on how God has produced steadfastness in your faith and revealed his faithfulness through those trials. Thank God for the trials he has led you through and pray for God to help you trust him through your current and future trials. See, God doesn't promise a trial-free life, but what he does promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us that he'll be with us each step of the way through our trials. And maybe you're asking yourself, well, where does the joy part come in? We've probably known and seen a lot of Christians that have suffered, um, that have gone through unimaginable trials, that may be going through those trials right now. And I can only imagine that the joy comes from these truths that they're, that they're clinging to, that God loves them, and that out of the billions and billions of people that have ever existed, he chose them before the foundation of the world. That there is a Savior, Jesus, who loves them so much that he gave his life for them so that they could spend eternity with him in heaven. And I just think that that, that hope, that anticipation of a heaven where there is no tears, there is no crying, there is no pain, no suffering, is where that joy comes from. And I thank you personally for your example of steadfast faith um, in the Lord. And it, it just reminds me of the old hymn where it says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I'd love to stay here all morning, but we have to move on. James then moves us over to temptation and kind of gives us some further insight as to what's going on with, with this kind of temptation. I ask the question, when we are tempted, who should we never blame and why? God, right? So let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, I don't know a lot of Christians who personally struggle with I would say, directly blaming God for temptation. But what about indirectly? Remember back in the garden when Adam says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Let me ask you, have you ever thought to yourself, uh, if I didn't have this job, I wouldn't have, you know, if I made more money, I wouldn't have to cheat on my taxes, or, you know, if I had a, a better marriage or kids that obeyed me, I wouldn't be so angry. Fill in the blank. Are we not guilty of the same thing, indirectly blaming God for the sin or the temptation in our life? James then goes on, conversely, how does he say we are tempted? <clears throat> Cynthia? Correct, yep, our own desires. He says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The Bible has a lot to say about this kind of desire, um, all, also known desires of the flesh. First John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We know that we're all born with a sin nature. We have a flesh that has a propensity to sin. If we didn't, there would be nothing for Satan or the world to tempt us with. We know that the desires of the flesh wage war against the spirit. Then James is going to give us a little bit more insight as to this progression of, of, of temptation. And once we yield to our desires, it says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Going back to the garden for a minute, it says, for the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And then what happened? She took of its fruit and ate. Of course, we know there are results of sin. And what, what does James say about those? Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We've seen this language before in the Bible. Of course, in the garden, it says, For in that day of it you eat, you shall surely die. And what does Romans say about eternal death? The wages of sin is death. Now for, for the believer, thankfully because of Christ, we don't have to fear eternal death. But what about death on this earth? And quotes, death. How about death of fellowship with God? Death of a marriage? Death of a relationship? Or death of a job? Or a testimony with others? Death of freedom? Sin always results in death. So what do we do with this temptation? Well, first we have to take a proactive approach. Watch and pray so that we will not fall into temptation. If we're not being diligent, if we're not in prayer, we're going to be just as susceptible to falling into this temptation. But we have to remember that God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. When we are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that we can endure it. God always provides a way out for temptation. What's that way out? What's that escape? Well, we have to run to that high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember that Jesus was tempted too, yet he didn't sin. And isn't it true that if we're a believer, we have Jesus living inside us, the Holy Spirit. We can claim authority over sin in our lives. It doesn't mean we'll, ha we'll live sinless, but we can maintain a consistent consistency of resisting temptation in our lives. Then we have to take a little bit more of an active approach. Flee the desires, evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. So I think of this turning from evil desires towards righteousness in God. Then this idea of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
otherwise known as walking in the Spirit, so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Have you ever noticed those days where you wake up, you're in God's Word right away, you're praying, maybe you've gone out to coffee with another believer, you're listening to podcasts, you're, you're, you're just fully engaged in the Spirit, and you look back on the day, you're like, wow, I didn't even really have time to be tempted. Conversely, on those days where you wake up, maybe you wake up late, you're checking your Facebook or whatever, you see some news or politics and you're already discouraged, you haven't even gotten out of bed yet, uh, you're driving to work, you're, you're irritated, and isn't it true, by lunchtime you've already um, been tempted a new number of times. So let me encourage you to take a proactive and active approach to temptation and desires of our flesh. Doers of the word. Uh, this could have easily been one of the key verses of the book of James. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We get one of my favorite pictures in all of scripture of this man who looks intently at his face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Isn't this so true of us at times? Let me set the stage for you. We're at church on a Sunday morning. We're hearing some awesome preaching. We're sitting there. We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're like fired up. I'm going to commit this to the Lord. Maybe we get in the car. We don't even make it home and we've already blown it. Uh, or we get through our week and we don't even remember what the message was about. That's the picture that James is trying to give us here. Of course, I would love to have time to go through every verse in the book of James, but um, what I did is I put together a little cheat sheet of what do, being doers of the word might look like according to the book of James. I, would, I almost envisioned printing this out and sticking it on our fridges and you know, kind of taking these one by one and seeing which ones we can commit to the Lord. And if you know me, you know I've talked about this uh, low-hanging fruit of sin in our lives. Rachel, I can print this out for you. You don't have to take a picture. <laughs> but I've often talked about this low-hanging fruit of sin in your life. While I would never discourage anyone from taking, tackling the biggest sins that you've struggled with for years head-on, I will say, especially in my experience, getting rid of that sin that's just easy pickings, like I could get rid of this today, whether it's foul language or maybe you're recently saved and you say OMG, you say I could get rid of this today and not even miss it tomorrow. And you start building this confidence that, yeah, you know, with God's help, I can get rid of sin in my life. And then you look back a year or two years and you're like, wow, I can't, can't even believe that this was a part of my life. So let me encourage you if, you're, if you want this, I'll print it out for you and Let's commit to, to being doers of the word together. Partiality. So James opens uh, chapter 2, talking about, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, maybe you didn't relate to the example he used of the rich man and the poor man coming to church, but who are those people if you close your mind, eyes and think about right now that the mere mention of them or the sight of them on the news or online just make you cringe, that bring up these uh, feelings of irritation and annoyance. Those are the people that, that I would ask you to uh, think about as we go through this. I asked the question, what familiar Old Testament verse does James quote uh, 
to remind us of how to treat others. Lisa. Which says what? Amen. So he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. James is like, all right, you say you're loving your neighbor, but if you're showing partiality to others, guess what you're not doing? That, right? In fact, he goes on further to say, what are we really doing if we're showing partiality? Yes, Brenda? We're, yeah, we're committing sin. Sometimes we think, oh, I just don't get along with those kinds of people. Or, you know, we're not compatible. But no, James is like, no, this is committing sin when we are showing partiality to others. We should never look at someone as a Christian based off of our personal feelings towards them, think that they're not worthy of receiving the gospel. Lest I remind you of our helpless, sinless, sinful state before Jesus came and saved our, us. So, a little bit of application here. Consider whether there are people groups in your life that you show partiality to. Confess that as sin to God and ask him to help you to have a heart of compassion towards those people for the sake of the gospel. Seek to share the gospel with those people you struggle with the most to love. Chapter 2 then goes on to talk about faith without works is dead. Of course, this is the, the heart of the book of James. Um, we, in this, we get our key verse. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the book of James doesn't come without a little bit of controversy. Uh, I was surprised to learn that Roman Catholicism clings to this passage of Scripture as evidence for works-based salvation. In fact, Martin Luther wanted to reject the book of James, largely part due to this um, passage of Scripture. He thought or felt that it contradicted Paul's writings uh, or the doctrine of uh, saved by faith alone. This morning, I'm going to do my best job to try to present the case for James, uh, why I don't believe that that's the case and why, what he was trying to say. First, let's look at James's focus. We've already seen the, one of the themes of the book of James is that he's challenging the sincerity or the genuineness of our faith. We looked at the testing of our faith in chapter 1 to prove our faith. We already looked at being doers of the word, not just hearers. And he's got tons of practical examples of what that looks like, loving your neighbor as yourself, attending to the outcasts of society, meeting the needs of others when you're able to. We'll look at some key words and phrases. When he opens the statement, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I've heard this better translated, can that kind of faith save him? Can that kind of lip service faith that has no roots, that doesn't show any evidence of salvation, save a person? James is gonna go on to challenge the definition of the word believe. We see a lot of people out that say, oh yeah, I believe in God, right? But there's, there's no genuine faith there. 
Well, James is saying even the demons believe that, that God is one and shudder. That doesn't mean they're saved. How about this word justified? Maybe this threw you off a little bit as you were reading. It threw me off. Uh, and I'm going to borrow from uh, the MacArthur Study Bible a little bit here. Uh, it talks about this misconception of the way Paul uses the word justified versus the way James is using it. And um, when Paul is using the word justified, he means declared righteous by God versus when James is using it, he means being demonstrated and proved. How about a little bit uh, more of an obvious one? He opens it with, what good is it, my brothers? Let's not forget the audience here. He's writing to Jewish believers, so there's an assumption that they're already saved, so there's no need to further explain salvation to them. James and Paul both reference Genesis 15:6. What truth about Abraham do they both affirm? That was one of our questions. Yes. Right. Yep. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in this case, this word believed is different than the one earlier where it says the demons believe. Otherwise, we just looked at this in Hebrews. What is this known as? Faith. We learned that by faith, Abraham obeyed. So faith results in an action or works. And we see here, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. This is long before the example that, um, that James uses when he says that he offered up Isaac. But again, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac. Faith, James is not suggesting that faith um, leads to salvation, I mean, that works leads to salvation, but rather that they're a result of salvation. So what is James trying to say? Works are a demonstration of our faith. This language isn't new to the New Testament. We know you will recognize them by their fruits. Fruits is another way of referring to works or evidence of salvation. In Titus it says, Who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works. In Ephesians, right after 2, 8, and 9, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should do what? Walk in them. And of course, how do we demonstrate our love and our faith for Christ? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. True salvation should always result in obedience of God's word. <clears throat> so there is a danger to go the other direction, which is works without faith. But what does the Bible say about that? Uh, Jesus himself, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then what does Jesus say? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The, the faith part has to come first. We know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Our, our works are like dirty rags. Hopefully that clears things up a little bit for you. I'm um, happy to talk some more about that with you later. 
Chapter 3 moves us on to the tongue. Uh, I talked about low-hanging fruit of sin in your life. The tongue is definitely not one of those areas for me, and uh, my wife will attest to that. But um, James opens up with a number of illustrations here. He talks about putting um, bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, and it guides their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And how great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. What's, what's common between these three illustrations? It, maybe you, I, did, I couldn't resist but bringing in one prop, but uh, in case you don't know what, what a bit is, this is what you put into the mo uh, mouth of a horse, and it can control this 2,000-pound animal. But what's, what's common between these illustrations is something small controlling something large. We've all seen forest fires and how much destruction is caused by them, all started by this little uh, forest fire. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. A uh, quick little funny story I'll tell you. Tyler knows I've shared this with him, but um, a couple of years ago, I was cooking a ham in the crock pot. Uh, I was excited for this ham. Uh, Michelle doesn't even know this story, but <laughs> my favorite part of the ham is like the very end, like that, that butt piece or whatever it's called. And I was looking forward to that all day. And I came over to check the crock pot, and that piece was missing. And, you know, I could feel all this angst rising up inside of me, and I wanted to comment so badly. But all I could picture was just how poorly of a decision that would be and how the rest of my night would probably not go well. And it, it, it invokes this image of this forest fire where you're just kind of like waiting to strike this match and light this giant fire, um, all because of something you said. James warns us of the dangers of our tongue. What are some ways we use our tongue for unrighteousness? Anybody want to share what they had? Barbara? Overcritical, I had that on my list. Tyler? Right, slandering, um, sharing information we shouldn't about others. Yes, Shane? Boasting, okay. Yeah, I didn't. What's that? Well, that would be the next one. The, the, uh, this is unrighteous list, but let me, uh, I wrote down sarcasm, uh, being unkind, gossiping, lying, swearing, corrupt communication, bitterness, being rude, yelling, blaspheming. I mean, the list goes on. I just wanted us to think about this, that if any of these are part of our lives, let's get rid of it. What are some ways, conversely, that we should use our tongue for God's glory. Praying, right? Okay. How about singing praises to God? How about sharing the gospel? Edifying one another? Encouraging? Um, just a quick note here after our application. How we use our tongue is critical to the Christian life. Pray that God would help you to control your tongue, use it for his glory. Uh, there were no computers, no social media in James' time, but I would say let's apply the same wisdom to our uh, virtual tongue and what we say online and type online. So moving on, wisdom from above. We didn't have time to look at this earlier, 
and I'm going a little bit out of order with the questions, but uh, recalling back to James 1.5, what will happen when we pray for wisdom? We'll get wisdom, right? God gives it generously to all without reproach. So let's assume we've prayed for wisdom. We're, we have a confident assurance that God's going to give us wisdom. Now we know, need to know what that looks like. First, we're going to look at what it, it doesn't look like when it comes from God. Oh, does anyone have that list before I put it up on the screen? Yes, Cynthia. Right, yeah. So bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. I would say we all agree this is a list we'd like to avoid when applying wisdom. What about wisdom? What does it look like when it comes from above? All right, I'll put it up. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. There's that word again, impartial, sincere. I love that James gives us this formula, and I would encourage you, next time you're praying for wisdom and, and looking to apply wisdom, just take it down this list and ask yourself, are my intentions pure? Is it peaceable? Am I being gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits? And if not, Go back to God and ask to, and pray for more wisdom. So I, asked, I said, does your practice of wisdom look like the attributes of verse 17? Meditate on the godly attributes of wisdom so that you can model godly wisdom in all areas of your life. Moving on to chapter 4. James warns Christians of worldliness and in fact says, what happens when we wish to be a friend of the world? What's that? Contaminated. Okay. What? Yes. Okay. What's the exact word, Craig? That with God. In fact, he even goes on to say, "Whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God." This, of course, shouldn't come as any surprise to us because what do we know about this world? Who's the God of this world? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I mean, naturally being a friend of the world would imply being a friend of Satan, who by nature is an enemy of God. So that would make sense. I wrote down a definition of the world, but it can be defined as a system of beliefs, values, and practices managed by Satan in order to blind and prevent people from having a genuine faith and obedient relationship with Christ. So I asked you, what might this look like in a Christian's life today? What did anyone put here? I'll share what I put here. Oh, go ahead, John. Uh, desire to control life, this is God's job, and have conflict with others. Okay, great. So a desire to control life, which is God's life, and conflict with others. I also put down, um, how about emulating or idolizing the world's, let's say, entertainment. Uh, adopting worldly philosophies like trust your heart, evolution. Uh, all you need to do is watch a television show or some advertisement, and you'll see how anti-God the world is and what they're trying to promote. So how do we guard ourselves against worldliness? Well, we need to seek the things that are above. We need to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. 
Romans tells us not to be conformed by, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And of course, in 1 John, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here we, we looked at this earlier, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Let me encourage you to guard yourself against worldliness, especially in young people I see. It's like those weeds that start to grow in your garden. Um, eventually you look and they've overtaken it. And there's that same danger with worldliness in the Christian's life. God opposes the proud. This could have easily been the key verse of James as well. James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I ask the question, what are three ways we can display humility according to verses 7 through 8? Yes, Brenda. Amen. So, in case you didn't hear that, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. How do we guard ourselves against pride in our life? We need to put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. First Peter tells us we need to clothe ourselves with humility. <clears throat> These are a little out of order, but anyways, resisting the devil, and, and he will flee from you. So what does this look like? Uh, does Satan come up to our front door, knock on it, and say, here, I'm here to tempt you and uh, wreak havoc in your life? Of course not. But the Bible tells us not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Well, what are those? We need to understand what Satan's tactics are in order to resist him. Well, one of them we already looked at, worldliness. We, look, we know that he's the God of this world. Do you think he's not going to use everything at his disposal to try to destroy the lives of Christians and unbelievers? What about lies? We know that Satan is the father of lies. So if you catch yourself believing a lie about God or Scripture, you can be sure that Satan's at work. What about fear? Have you ever watched the news? All that's promoted is fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Doubting or questioning. Remember in the garden, did God actually say? Sometimes uh, we know that Satan's uh, tactics are to wrap some truth with just like 10% of um, untruth about God to get us to doubt or question him. What about deception? We learned uh, earlier on in the New Testament that Satan and his demons disguise themselves as angels of light. Maybe there's a preacher or something that you listen to on podcasts that you love most of his stuff, but they start like putting in some stuff that is anti-biblical and tickle your ears and you start to get curious about it. Don't fall for it. What was Jesus' example of dealing with Satan? He used the word of God as a defense. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Second time he was tempted, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally he told him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then what happened? The devil left him. So resisting the devil and he will flee from you. 
guarding ourselves against Satan, we know we need to take up the whole armor of God, praying, being in the word, serving. And then we need to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. We've only got a couple of minutes left here. I'll try to get through chapter 5, but we open with a warning to the rich. And what does James rebuke the rich for doing in chapter 5? Yes, Tyler. Mm. So the Bible talks about the rich often, um, and they have a negative connotation with it. It's not a sin to be wealthy, but when you treat your riches this way, laying up treasure in the last day, living in self-indulgence, fattening your hearts in the day of slaughter, this is where the rebuke comes from. What does James say will happen to their riches? Yes, Lisa. Riches will be rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. This should sound familiar to us, and, and we talked about the influence of Jesus' sermons. Uh, according to Matthew 6, 19 through 21, where does Jesus say believers should lay up treasure? In heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Lastly, the coming of the Lord, according to verses 7 through 8, how are believers instructed to live in anticipation of the coming of the Lord? Brenda? Patience. Yep. Patiently establishing your hearts. Uh, establishing your hearts is like this uh, call for resu resolute, firm, Courage and commitment to the Lord. And how does the illustration of the farmer in verse 7 help us to think about how to wait for the return of the Lord? Lisa? Yeah, so like Lisa said, it's a patience-based um, uh, job and it says see how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains the early rains would have come in October or November um, and uh, prepared the ground for planting the late rains would have come in March and April which would have produced the crops and the pa the uh, farmer is not just waiting you know unexpectedly for anything to happen there's a reasonable hope and expectation of reward. And so too with the Christian. We talked about the crown of life earlier. We're looking forward to that reward of eternity with heaven, in heaven. So who are some bib biblical examples of this type of patience? Job and the prophets, right? Um, we don't have time to get into all that, but I ask the question, are you laying up treasure in heaven? Does the anticipation of the coming of the Lord serve as a motivator in your daily walk as you persevere in the faith? Pray that God would help us to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things, as we patiently wait for the coming of our wonderful Savior. There's a lot of awful things that happen in the world that can discourage us, uh, cause us to want Jesus to come today. And while that's 
exciting and great for the Christian, we're reminded of our unbelieving friends, which for them that means judgment. We have a lot of work to do still left here, so while we're patiently waiting for the Lord, let us put our faith to work, like James says, and remain steadfast. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for what you've taught us this morning. We thank you for salvation that we have through Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we consider how you would have us to treat others, how you would have us to walk in faith, walk in the Spirit, help us as Christians to um, draw near to you in all things, to resist temptation, and to love you and live for you each day. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.